There have been many uh, pivot points in American history. 1776 was a huge pivot point when we declared our independence from England. 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation, the slaves were set free. 9-11, more recently, a pivot point when America came under attack and seemed everything changed. And it seems now we're at another one of those pivot points, the coronavirus. Seems like we're just beginning to see some light at the end of the long tunnel. But we can say for sure that the cross was the ultimate pivot point in history. You know, the, uh, the Romans were in power then. They figured out how to stay in power. And any of, enemy of Rome would be crucified. First they flogged the person. Then they crucified them, putting them on the highways, the crossroads, where they could be easily seen. And there they would hang for some 24, 48, 72 hours. You could hear their cries. The cross is how we are reconciled to God. The vertical beam, there's a representation of the cross. The vertical beam pictures the love of God reaching down from heaven to mankind. And the horizontal beam pictures the love of God reaching out to all of humanity. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The Romans wouldn't have minded if Christians had said that Jesus is a God, meaning he is one of the gods added to their pantheon. They'd be happy to push the gods around on the shelf, making room for Jesus. If Paul had said, you can have Jesus and keep your Zeus also, no problem, no issues, no controversy. So why were the Christians martyred? Why, were, why was Paul stoned? Christianity was always the threat to Rome. You see, there was nothing that you can do to save yourself. Every other religion teaches us that to go to heaven, you go because of what you do. You go to church or a synagogue or a mosque. You pray to Mecca. You give alms to the poor. You light a candle. You pray all night long. You keep the Ten Commandments. You obey the law. You stay out of jail. You try harder. You pedal faster. You climb higher. You do your best. You follow the golden rule. The problem with trying to do to get to heaven is, when have you done enough? And what happens if you mess up? <laughs> That's why we sing that Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all, all to whom I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. We find, first of all, in Romans, this enormous courtroom scene. We find it, if we're turning back to Romans 4, 23, it says, when God counted him Abram righteous, it wasn't just for his benefit. It wasn't because Abram kept the law that he was considered righteous. The law wasn't even given yet. Moses was 400 years later. He wasn't religious enough to be saved. It wasn't his religion that saved him. He wasn't saved by being circumcised. He wasn't circumcised until he was 99 years old. Now, Abram had the gospel preached to him. Remember the promise that God made that through you, all the nations will be blessed, that someday one of your descendants, the Messiah, will come. And Abraham believed, and God reckoned to him righteousness. The promise is that if we believe in him, 
We believe that Jesus is who he said he is. He is God's son, the son of God. He is the lamb of God, innocent and pure and just. He's the one who never sinned, who always obeyed the Father. And at the cross, the innocent Jesus suffered for the sins of humanity. Mankind's sin was put onto Jesus, transferred to him, the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. And the moment we believe, whether we have been religious or irreligious, the Bible declares that we are justified. Our Savior has done enough. His work is sufficient. So Paul spends the first first part of the book of Romans, first four chapters actually, being like a prosecuting attorney, bringing evidence and evidence and evidence that we have none um, are righteous, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's as if we stand before God and the evidence is presented against us and we are speechless. And there is Jesus, our defense attorney, saying, I have paid the ultimate price. I have paid the death penalty. And him who's seated on the throne, the Father says, He believes in me. He believes in Jesus. Therefore, I declare you justified. Now, therefore, since we've been justified in God's sight, we have peace with God. There are four benefits in the first four four verses of Romans 5 I'd like to speak to. Benefit number one is we have peace with God. Benefit number two is we have unlimited access to God. Number three is we have the hope of heaven. And four is our trials are producing something in our life. Now, I don't know if any of you have looked for work recently. You've applied somewhere, but you know that when you do, there often is negotiation, right, for salary and benefits. The story is told in the pandemic, there was a young man who graduated from a prestigious university, MIT, who was looking for his first job. So he found a company that was willing to interview him for being an engineer. And the HR person said, what kind of a salary are you looking for as a starting point? And the engineer said, I was thinking of a salary of $250,000. But that kind of depends on the benefit package. Well, the HR person said, what would you say if we were to give you five weeks of paid vacation? What would you say if we offered you 14 paid holidays? What would you say if we offered you medical and dental insurance? What would you say if we matched your retirement up to half of what you put in? What would you say if we gave you a free cell phone and leased you a car every two years? The young young engineer said, stood up straight and he said, wow, are you kidding? And the HR person said, yeah, but you started it first. (laughs) Little joke. So when we talk about the benefit package that, (laughs) the benefit package that God's offering to a believer, you may say, like, are you kidding? Are you serious? Well, let's look at what God offers us as a benefit package. Benefit number one, we have peace with God. Having been reconciled to God, we have peace with God. An unsaved person is at odds with God, at enmity with God, distant from God. You might not be a Christian and you say, I don't have anything against God. But if you're honest, you could say you've tried to live by your own rules. 
you've lived as if God doesn't exist. If you're honest, you'd say you've done things you shouldn't have done. You've said things you shouldn't have said. You said yes when you should have said no. You said no when you should have said yes. And you have some regrets. God knows there's a vast gulf between sinful mankind and himself. And Jesus came to bridge that gulf. God is holy and just and must punish sin. But God is also merciful. And he doesn't want you to suffer forever. So he took the punishment upon himself that we deserved, that we would have peace with God. The story is told of a policeman who pulled over a man. The man was exceeding the speed limit. The policeman asked for his driver's license and his registration. And as he checked the man out, he found out his registration had expired. So the policeman was required to write this man a ticket. It was the right thing to do. But just when he was getting ready to write the ticket, he said, I'm sorry, officer. I lost my job in the pandemic. I had to make a choice between feeding my family or paying this registration. The, part, the officer heard the story and went back to his car. And he did the right thing. He wrote the ticket. And he handed the man a pamphlet. And he opened it up. And he saw their ticket for the speeding violation. He also saw a ticket for the registration not filled out. And he also saw the policeman paid his ticket. He gave him money. You see, God paid our penalty, and in his mercy, he offers us forgiveness. What is this peace of God? It's the reality that there's nothing between us and God, that we have been reconciled, that we are in good terms, that we are okay. Now, it's important here. He's not referring to the peace as a feeling that floods our hearts. For some of us, when we got reconciled, we felt as if a huge burden was lifted off our shoulders. But Paul is not talking so much here about feelings as he is a new identity, a new position. Everything has shifted in this new reality. You see, these feelings in our lives will come and go. But the reality of our new position is what's really important. What I find is people are always searching after peace. In your own life, you probably have searched for peace. We're always trying to find what to do about this emptiness inside of us and fill it up with something. And we, what we want is peace. People try to find peace by taking a long walk or a long run. People try to find peace from eating the right foods like broccoli and spinach and kale and Brussels sprouts. People try to find peace by watching Netflix, binging on Netflix. People try to get peace by diffusing essential oils and rubbing them in your feet. feet. Now, I'm not saying any of these things are bad, but I'm talking about something much deeper. I'm talking here about the peace with God. Now, I've been a pastor for about 40 years, and I've heard many people say, I don't really feel the love of God. I don't feel close to God. And I will say, why do you look to your feelings to tell you about your relationship with God? Look instead to the promises in the Word of God. So I'm going to tell you how it is, okay? The moment you believed, when you became a believer, God declared you righteous. He pronounced you 
justified by your faith. He has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. He has buried your sin in the deepest part of the sea and put up a no fishing sign. He has taken your account down to zero when he forgave you. And he put righteousness into your account when he justified you. And now he treats you just as if you've never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. A righteous God can have a, right, have a relationship with a sinner when he makes that person righteous. The cross made the peace of God possible. God has signed the peace treaty. He signed it in red with his blood. And we have signed on to the peace treaty. This is enormous thing. So let's say you don't feel the peace of God. Remember, this is a fact. It's not always a feeling. If you don't have the peace of God, the way to get it back is not working on your feelings. It's reviewing your justification. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need to go over the facts again and again. Remind yourself that you are a sinner, that Jesus is your Savior, and what he did on the cross saved you from your sin. Remind yourself of who Jesus is, of what Jesus did, that he has delivered you from sin. It's not what you have done, it's what has been done for you. That's pretty huge. When I became a believer, everything began to shift in my life. No longer did I think about God as my judge, seeming to correct me and straighten me out as much as God being my heavenly father. And the second thing that began to happen with me was I no longer had this fear of death. Cindy was testified yesterday that several times she was taken in the ambulance to the hospital in her cancer condition, and she would testify the EMTs, I'm not afraid to die because I know my Savior. I wasn't born when the Second World War was over, but my father fought in the North Atlantic, then in the Pacific, the Liberated Islands. He was married in 1940 and didn't return to the States till 1946. But can you imagine when the news came across the wire that Berlin has fallen, that Germany has surrendered, the peace treaty with Japan has been signed. In places like Honolulu, Tokyo, and places like New York, London, the lights that had been blackened were now allowed to shine brightly. The church bells that had been silent now began to ring with gladness. The people who hadn't laughed or danced or celebrated, now they could laugh and dance and celebrate because the war was over and peace has come. I tell you that the war with God is over. And now for the believer, we have peace with God. So the first benefit of being justified by faith is we have peace with God. You want a second one? Is that enough? Here we go. Number two, we have unlimited access to God. Wow. Not only do we have peace with God, but we have unlimited access to God. Look at the scriptures, verse 2. Through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Now, I don't know if your phone plan has, gives you unlimited data. <laughs> Before we got unlimited data, Debbie and I, 
Josh, our college student, was our biggest data user. We kept always using more data than our plan allowed. Now we have unlimited data. And access is another big issue, right? When we go somewhere, we want to use the internet. We want to get access, right? So we ask the password in order to have access. So let's see what this means to have unlimited access to God. It, you could think of the word grace here to mean favor. This is less about mercy for our sins and more about living in a state of favor. God's favor has been given to you. God's grace has been given to you. You're no longer in a state of being under sin. Now you're under grace. You are a child of God, and God has shown his grace to you. J.I. Packer says, you can tell how much somebody understands Christianity by finding how much they cherish, make a big deal about being God's child. If this is not the thought that controls your worship and prayers, entire outlook on life, it means you don't understand Christianity very well at all. So let's talk about access. You don't get access to anybody, right? That's why there's a show, Access Hollywood, right? Because some people are really interested in the lives of people whose lives are pretty messed up. <laughs> so when you're getting access to something, let's say it's a, a king. You need to know somebody in order to get access to the king. Somebody brings you into the presence of the king. And somebody shows you that, how to dress and how to treat the king. God declares us righteous, justified by faith. We're given access to God. We don't know what to wear, so God clothes us in his righteousness. We don't know what to say, so God teaches us how to pray. You see, we're talking here about coming confidently, boldly into God's presence. It means we can ask God for grace when we need his grace, ask God for his mercy when we need his mercy, ask God for his wisdom when we need his wisdom. The access to God is a revolutionary idea that we can come into the presence of a holy God, into his throne room anytime, anywhere, that God has given to us access. Ephesians 2.18 says, through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one spirit. Then 3.12 says, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The idea in paganism of being intimate with God was unheard of. The gods were capricious and cantankerous and vengeful. I mean, the gods needed to be appeased. You wouldn't want to get near the gods. You wanted to stay away as far as possible. You didn't want to tick off the gods. In Judaism, the only person who could get close to God, near to God, was the high priest once a year. They built courts on the distance for the Gentiles, for the women, for the Jews. But once a year, the high priest could come into that holy place. And even then, when he came, he came with a rope around his ankle and a bell lest he die there and they drag him out but now we can stay in God's presence we can pray in God's throne room because we have access do you know the story of Esther 
Esther was a lovely Jewish maiden taken captive in the land of Persia. The king, seeking a bride, found her and made her his queen. Apparently, there was a, the king's name was Xerxes, and he had a former wife whose name was Vashti. And Vashti, he was drunken, and he was trying to parade her in front of his guests, and she wouldn't go. She was a person of integrity. So he had this beauty contest in Persia, and her uncle, whose name was Mordecai, brought Esther to the king. And out of all the women in the land, Esther was chosen. And she ascended to the throne. And there was a plot that was hatched against the Jews. And the Jews, the king unwittedly signed his decree that meant death for all the Jews in Persia. And Mordecai, who was her uncle, the godly uncle, said it would be necessary for Queen Esther to go before the king and tell him what he, was to, what he had done. And that was a risky thing to do. Nobody could come before the king unless they were summoned. So here's what's going on. King Xerxes, king of Persia, is sitting on his royal throne. And he has asked Esther not in the last 30 days to come. And now she's been praying with her friends for three days and three nights. Praying and fasting. And she is gathering up the strength to come into the presence of the king. Because she knows the king has the power to grant her access or strike her dead. And she comes dressed in her royal robes. And the king extends his royal scepter to Esther. And she touched the scepter. The king was so smitten with her beauty, his heart went out to her. And he stretched forth this royal scepter and accepted her. She was given access to the king. That's what Paul is talking about here, that we now have access to the king of all kings. We have access to him who's the Lord of all lords. We have access to him who is above all others. We have access to him who has no rivals, no equals. He is the God of all gods, and God has granted us access into his very presence and into his throne room at any time. Number two, benefit. Benefit number three, we have a hope of heaven. Oof. We rejoice, it says, verse two, in the hope of the glory of God. You see, our salvation is anchored in the past of God's forgiveness, his granting us righteousness. We are in the present, given us access into the God's throne room, into his very presence and also our salvation is pointed toward the future. Our hope, it goes beyond today. It goes to the glory of God, a reference to heaven. One day, brothers and sisters, you will be in his presence and see his glory. Moses prayed, Lord, show me your glory. Man, I've always been puzzled by that. Wouldn't it be enough to be Moses to have experienced what he experienced? God appeared to him in a burning bush. God parted the Red Sea. God drowned all those Egyptians in the Red Sea. God gave him water from a rock. God gave him manna every day, you know, raining down from heaven. Can't you be happy, Moses, with that? But he said, Lord, show me your glory. 
And so God put him in the cleft of a rock and he passed by. He could only see the train of God going by. This hope is the confidence that God will keep all of his promises. That God one day will restore all that's broken down here. One day this earth will be made new. One day there will be justice. One day there will be peace on earth. But in the meantime, God is redeeming believers for his good purposes. Listen, I believe in a God who does miracles. But sometimes the cancer doesn't go in remission. Sometimes the marriage doesn't get reconciled. Sometimes the one who does wrong gets away with doing their wrong. But I have hope, and my hope is in the glory of God, that God who sees the things that are wrong will make all things right. There, there is a future. The benefit here is we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. I have a friend of mine who lives in the Midwest, and um, in the dead of winter, he looked out his window and he saw there a, a mail truck driving up to his house to the mailbox and put something in the mailbox. Of course, there's a storm going on. It's snowing like crazy outside. And he went out in the bitter cold, dead of winter, and walked to the mailbox. And he's opened up. He saw a seed catalog. Now, some of you have gardens, right? And there's nothing like a seed, gar- seed catalog to captivate the beauty of fresh fruits and vegetables. <laughs> As he stood there looking at his seed catalog, he could taste the crunch of a cucumber. He could smell the fragrance of a rose. He could feel the juice of a tomato running down his face. It seemed as if winter went away for a moment and it was springtime. When a believer focuses upon heaven, it seems as if the things of this earth just pass away for a little while and we imagine what it must be like to be in heaven in the presence of Jesus. You know, this was captured by Samuel Rutherford who wrote this, the sands of time are sinking, the dawn of heaven breaks, the summer morn I've sighed for, the fair sweet morn awakes. Dark, dark has been the midnight, but day spring is at hand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand, the lamb in all his glory in Emmanuel's land. The hope of heaven, it's sure, never be taken from you. And the last benefit is our trials are productive. Our trials are producing something. Look at this, verses 3 and 4. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Say what? Pump the brakes. Did you read that right, Pastor R? Not only so, we have peace with God. We have access to God anytime. We have the hope of heaven. But we also rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know something. We know that our sufferings produces something. It produces perseverance. And we know that perseverance produces something, proving character. And we know that proving character produces something, hope. So let's talk about this. Jesus said, 
In this world, you will have tribulation. But we would like to live a pain-free life. We would like just smooth sailing, not a bumpy ride, right? We prefer not to deal with trials and tribulations. We prefer to be healthy, you know, not dealing with disabilities, not recovering from injuries, not coping with cancer. We prefer there to be peace in our relationships, not pressures and problems. Jesus said it this way, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Justification is not an escape from trials. It's a guarantee that our trials have a purpose. Our trials are not working against us. Our trials are working for us and to God's glory. When you think about Joseph, of what he went through, being sold by his brothers into slavery, being trafficked, right? He experienced a lot of trial, a lot of tribulation. But at the end of it all, he said, you all meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many, many lives. Again, Samuel Rutherford said these words, why should I tremble at the plow of my Lord when it makes deep furrows in my soul? He is no idle husbandman. He produces in me a crop. We long for a pain-free life. Some believe that when we pray, God should answer all of our prayers the way we want. I heard this week the First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden, being interviewed by Kelly Clarkson. She said she prayed for her 46-year-old son who died to who died to be healed of his cancer. And when he died, she lost her faith. Now, some believe that if you're a Christian, you will never experience disappointment, never experience loss, never experience sadness. Some say there's nothing in this life that should ever affect you. That's not Christianity, that's Buddhism. (laughs) Pain is a necessary corollary to love. If you love somebody and they die, you will feel pain. The only way to have a pain-free life is to have a love-free life. If anything, Christians feel the pain more because we love more. Fortunately, Dr. Biden was visiting a church in the South, and someone offered to her to be her prayer partner. She said, I didn't know what a prayer partner was. And someone offered to be her prayer partner, and now they pray together twice a week. You see, Christians feel the pain of suffering very deeply, but we choose to rejoice in it because God promises to produce something in it. What is it that God is producing? He is producing in us perseverance. Perseverance means to keep on keeping on, to abide under, to remain under. A person who's persevering is abiding under, remaining under God's grace sticking with it, hanging in there. To persevere is just to keep on keeping on. The great illustration of God producing something in pain is a woman in labor. Now, if someone were to say to you today that they're expecting, you'd probably say, congratulations, wouldn't you? Like, I'm happy for you. That's great news that you're expecting. Why don't we say, I'm so sorry for you. 
these next nine months are going to be rough. You're going to be nauseous, like eat a lot of crackers. Why do we say, that's great news? Because we know this suffering is going to produce something. Watching a woman in labor and see the expression on her face, if you have any empathy, you can't help feel deeply hurt for her because she's going through great pain. But somehow there's joy in the labor because the labor of suffering is producing something. It is the child that makes the labor worthwhile. And some of you here would do it all again to have another child. What I'm trying to say is we deeply resent suffering because we think that we don't deserve suffering. But suffering produces something in us that can't be produced otherwise, which is perseverance. You know, when you face something for the first time, it's a trial you weren't expecting. It caught you by surprise. It makes you panicky. Our human tendency in trials is to want to be done with them, right? To get them over as soon as possible. That was horrible. That was terrible. But thank God that's over. At least I'll never have to go through that again. I've learned my lesson. And then another trial comes along, and you aren't happy about it. You wish you didn't have to deal with this, but you've been through something before, and now you have experience to draw upon. You've learned how to rely upon God. And then another trial comes along, and you've seen this before. You know how to handle this, and you are steadied. The word for perseverance is steadied. God has steadied you through this experience. And what does the perseverance produce? It produces proven character. Steadiness through trials produces reliability. We realize we will not be destroyed by this trial. You know, when they're going to test, ti- test tires, they put them through tests. They test them through swamps and marshes, cobblestone roads, desert sands, roads with potholes, boards with nails in them. Why? Because once the tire has been tested, it's been proven you see? And that's what character is. Over time, through perseverance, a person's character is being formed. Sports teams that are new to championship playoffs may play poorly because they've not been in that position before. But a tested team who has experience, when they come to the playoffs, they will have fewer mistakes because they will perform well because they've been there before. Suffering forces you to focus on God and gain a proper perspective and the priorities to your life. And the last thing that happens with this proven character produces in us hope. The hope that God has not forgotten me, that God has not forsaken me, that God is with me. And looking back on it all, I see the hand of God. Paul's going to come now. He's going to share with us his experience. This is Paul McKinley, Sharon's husband. He's going to share with us how God has built hope into his life. Good morning, Grace. It's been my privilege to, uh, two weeks ago, to share a testimony of how God redeemed me through Christ at a place that I was a slave unto sin, a slave to darkness and Satan, and God met me on the road to Damascus, and he saved me. He was my deliverer. He was my sacrifice. Uh, 
my prayer is, our prayer is, if you had found yourself or find yourself in that such slavery, that God can save you as well. I'm going to conclude my testimony uh, post-salvation. <laughs> when I was 24 in 1987, when God saved me, um, one of the things that I come to realize is uh, a clarity that I didn't have before. Is, you know, I, I saw life as it truly was, and I saw myself uh, as I needed to be, a more responsible individual, a uh, better father, better husband. Uh, at that time, my wife had ran off with another man uh, before I got saved, and um, she was with him for two weeks, left, spent the next couple of years trying to divorce. He was in Alaska. He ended up committing suicide. So I thought, being a young Christian, I had a four-year-old daughter at the time. I thought it'd be right to, I, I, I need to be reconciled to my, my wife. I need to be reconciled to my family. So, and that's exactly what we did. In 1990, we got reconciled. We got remarried. Uh, after that, we had uh, four other children. And um, we began to homeschool. We began to serve Christ in our church together uh, in youth ministry. I was uh, teaching Sunday school. I was teaching the young youth for three years. I became youth pastor for six years in our Baptist church. I even had an opportunity to uh, go to Lancaster Bible College, got my bachelor's degree in biblical studies and Christian ministry. For 20 years, we've done this. But I want to share with you one of the hardest trials of my life at that time that I faced is after 20 years, uh, my wife, whether she was saved or not saved, reverted back to what she had done before. I came home one Friday afternoon after work, and she looked at me and said, I don't love you anymore. I want a divorce. Hmm. And I'm like, hmm. what do you mean you want a divorce? Uh, if there's problems, let's go get some counseling. Let's go... Let's go get some help. He says, no, I, I, I want a divorce. I said, I'm not going to divorce you unless there's somebody else. Well, she said, there's somebody else. Hmm. So apparently she'd been online communicating to guys. She found one in Michigan. She'd been communicating. And that Saturday morning, she jumped in my pickup truck. Hmm. She drove to Michigan and never saw her again. Wow. Communicated with her, sent her some money. They end up getting married because the first thing that I did after that uh, was to secure my finances. She not only abandoned me, she abandoned uh, our five children. One had already uh, graduated college, but I had four children. Three of them were still in school. Three were still homeschooling. It was September, and here I was working full-time. I have these children. What am I going to do? Hmm. You know, homeschooling start up. You know, it was one of the most difficult times that I faced in my life. Just prior to that, my ministry fell apart. Mm. Uh, things that she was doing in church, um, we were called into a meeting. I was called into a meeting with the elders and the pastors. Says, you know what? We're going to go in a different direction. Basically, they were saying, we don't want you guys here anymore. So with tears, I left there. Um, everything was like before, pulled out from under me stripped away but there's one thing that was different my feet were planted on the rock of christ 
And I did not slip. I had Christ as my Savior, even through this hardship, even through this trial and tribulation. And um, God is a merciful God. He brought me through that trial, and he restored me. He restored me in a way that, that I was not expecting to be restored. After a year uh, that I had gotten divorced, I was thinking about dating. I joined eHarmony. Um, 20 years out of the dating circuit, I didn't really know what to do. Uh, this girl uh, dropped me a line. I began to converse with her. Uh, the first one who sent me a line, we began to uh, write back and forth. It, it ended up in phone calls. It Then it ended up in meetings. And uh, before I even met her face-to-face, I fell in love with her. <laughs> and I knew that she was going to be the one I was going to marry. And she's sitting right here, Sharon. Yeah. And with her, uh, three wonderful children had uh, come into my life, and we began to serve Christ in church together. Uh, we began to build a new life. Um, she needs to give her testimony as well one day. Uh, we moved here to Maryland. She was from Ohio. I was from Pennsylvania, and uh, bought a house and began attending church uh, before we started attending here and served Christ together. And I just want to tell you guys, if you are here as a believer and you are facing a suffering, if you're facing a tribulation and a trial of which we are promised that we are going to face, because like Pastor said, uh, this produces perseverance and produces character and ultimately produces hope in our life. Uh, it's not about having the good life now. You know, we, this is purposeful from God, that we would slowly throughout our lives and whatever experience be transformed to that image and reflection of Christ. And that's God, the Holy Spirit, working in and through us for that very purpose. So I just, I want to encourage you, you know, uh, and I thank you for the five minutes that I can go over one of the hardest trials of my life, but to encourage you, if you're facing the same, whether it be divorce or sickness, or loss of a loved one, or through this whole COVID ordeal, that God is with you. God promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you, and your feet are planted securely on the rock of Christ. And look up, for redemption is drawing near. <laughs> yes, so is. with that, I, I thank you for the opportunity to conclude my testimony. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Paul. We give glory to God for what he does in our lives. We look back, we see his hand, don't we? We see what God has been up to. He's been in this reconstruction business. And some of you may be at that crisis point right now where you're just really needing to trust him because your faith is really being tested. I'd just like to pray over you. Father in heaven, you are faithful and you are compassionate and you hear the cries of our hearts. You know exactly what's going on in our lives. You know how we're being so tested at this very hour. There's something that's just beyond our ability to cope with. 
beyond our strength, beyond our understanding. We understand, Lord, that you, you have strength to give to your people. You have a perspective that in this testing, Lord, you're building within us perseverance and proven character and even given to us hope. I pray, Lord, for massive amounts of hope to be given to us in the darkness of times, that we might rely upon your promises, which everyone are true, but we never know they're true until we have to trust you. See, we never know that you are all, our, all we need until, God, you are all we have. And when you are all we have, then and only then we understand that you are all we need. God, you are everything necessary for us. And we trust you. And we thank you, Lord, for restoring Paul's life. And we pray these truths that we've been preaching about could be received by us as the benefits of truly being justified by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we begin to talk about trials that people are going through, you just might need someone to pray with. To my left is Ken. He's one of our elders. To my right is Amir. He's one of our elders. And um, really, don't leave here. If you've got something that's just pressing against your heart, you're kind of walking through, you just need someone to pray over you because we really want to be a house of prayer. You know, yesterday we said goodbye to Cindy. And one of Cindy's things she would say is, the moon is always round. The moon is always round. You may only see a sliver of it. And by that she meant God is always good. You may not see the full picture of God's goodness, if you look carefully, you'll see how good God has been, even in our trials. Pray with me. Father, thank you for holding us. Thank you for holding us close to your heart, for delighting in your children. You don't cause the suffering that comes into our life, but you certainly allow it. And in our suffering, Lord, we need to cry out to you, and we really do need to turn to you in faith, believing. God, you can carry us through it. Give us wisdom and strength, perspective on it. Shape our character. Give us hope. So, Lord, I pray that over each one, that these beautiful benefits of being justified by faith would become ours in increasing measure. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.